Today's podcast is sponsored by the 2022 Westminster Conference, September 9th and 10th. Register now online at rpts.edu slash events. And there's more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. There's one person, two natures. Those two natures are not in the same order of being, so they're not competing with each other. And it's perfectly acceptable to say that there's suffering uh, in the humanity and transcendence of suffering in the deity. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm James Dolzell, the co-host, but this time not co-hosting as my normal co-host, Jonathan Master, is away uh, on the business of his denomination. He is doing presbytery work. This being, uh, We're recording in the month of general assemblies uh, for various Presbyterian denominations, and so Jonathan is away uh, at work on behalf of his church. We have a great guest on uh, today. Dr. Stephen Duby is Associate Professor of Theology at Phoenix Seminary. He's the author of several books, God in Himself, Scripture and Metaphysics, Uh, and the task of theology, and the publication of his earlier doctoral dissertation uh, from T.N.T. Clark, Divine Simplicity, a Dogmatic Account. Stephen, welcome to Theology on the Go. We're glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. Stephen and I have some overlapping interests. Uh, He writes more prolifically than I do, and I read what he writes and and, uh, enjoy it, and I think our listeners will too. The book we want to discuss today is his recent publication from Baker Academic, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, Biblical Christology in Light of the Doctrine of God. So Stephen, let's just jump right in, and I'm going to throw sort of a challenge at you that you deal with early in the book. It's one that I'm sure uh, you and I wrote on the same doctoral topic in our doctoral dissertation, uh, agreeing, but I think sort of substantially developing an argument to the same conclusion along different lines, uh, which is really a delight to have both of those out there. But I've received the challenge, perhaps you have as well. Yes, classical theism, God is immutable and impassable and timeless and non-multiparted. He's simple. But what about Jesus? Uh, And I I don't know if you've had it put to you that way, but what about Christ incarnate? How can we have the God of classical theism and Christ incarnate. And so I, what I want to know is you have a book length response, I think, to that challenge, but what is your man on the street response initially? How do you begin to broach that challenge to classical theism and why, what are some ways to maybe deflate it gently, but to deflate it as you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was a motivating question for writing the book. So I would say two things come to mind off the top of my head. One would be when we talk about Christ being both divine and human, we have to talk about his divinity and his humanity remaining distinct from each other. So he is one person, but his divine nature is never collapsed into his human nature or vice versa. So there are things that pertain to him and his humanity, like uh, his experience of thirst or hunger or things like that, that are just not brought over into his divinity. And that's not a threat to him being one person. It's just that he is one person with two distinct natures. And likewise, uh, we could say um, certain things about his divinity that are not uh, that are not lost in the incarnation. So he remains omniscient, for example, even as he has a finite human intellect that 
at least in Mark 13, looks like uh, includes uh, not knowing the exact hour of his return. So there are certain things about his humanity that remain distinctly uh, within his humanity and certain things about his divinity that remain distinctly within his divinity. So it's not a problem for us to say that in his divine nature, he remains immutable, impassable, simple, and so forth. In fact, that's what we have to say as Christians who take it seriously that uh, he is both divine and human and that he doesn't collapse one of his natures into the other. Um, a second thing to add would be that I would say scripture presses us to think about how uh, attributes like impassibility, immutability, and so forth actually are part of the necessary backdrop for the incarnation. So when Paul, let's say in 2 Corinthians or, or Philippians 2, emphasizes that there's something new about Jesus' human lowliness and poverty and all of that, um, all of that is actually presupposing a very high view of Jesus' divinity which, if we read across the whole canon of scripture, includes things like immutability, impassibility, and so forth. So we can make a clarification about the two distinct natures, and then also strengthen our line of argument by saying, in fact, the incarnation, the teaching on the incarnation in scripture presupposes, implies a high view of Christ's divine attributes. So what happens? Does the, the incarnation loses its genuine novelty? Can I say, is that a way to say it? I think that's an appropriate thing to say, yeah, because um, Paul's clear in Philippians 2, for example, that the form of God in which Christ always existed, that is distinct, and it is unlike the form of a servant in which Christ comes to exist as he takes on a human nature. So I think um, people may not expect this, but actually uh, a historic Christian view of God is what accounts for the drama and the novelty of the incarnation. Otherwise, it's just kind of already was this now just a little more so or in a slightly yeah. tweaked mode? Yeah, we don't want to say it's more of the same. In other words, we don't want to make it sound like the incarnation was not a big deal in the plan. Of All right, I'm going to go down to the weeds with you just a tiny bit on this. Sure. I don't want to get lost in them, so I'm going to trust you to not let us get lost in them. But <laughs> I'm thinking of someone like Bruce McCormick and maybe a way he would respond to that, which is that what you're doing, Stephen what maybe the classical tradition broadly, uh, even with all this diversity that kind of broadly concedes in doing is you're starting with a doctrine of God that is sort of high and metaphysical and is in particular developed independently or prior to a consideration of Jesus of Nazareth, the man Christ Jesus, the Messiah as such incarnated. Yeah. And so maybe just in response, maybe you could say something to this. Is it okay to begin a doctrine of God that doesn't take all of its starting principles from yeah. incarnation as such? Yeah, I think it's, it's important for us to affirm, yes, it is okay not to begin the doctrine of God from the incarnation or to ground it only in the incarnation. I think scripture actually expects that of us. For example, when we come to the Gospels, um, we're supposed to know that there is a God uh, who created the world, who chose Israel to be his people in the Old Testament period and so forth. So if you, if you don't know anything about who God is or what God is like when you come to the Gospels, you'll be in trouble from, from the very beginning. Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't learn more about God as we study the incarnate Christ and all that he taught and revealed in the New Testament. But we are supposed to come to the table knowing certain things about God. We could say that some of that is, is meant to be from natural revelation or natural knowledge of God. But then also, if we jump into scripture, um, 
we are supposed to already know things about God from the Old Testament. That sounds like, like almost a too, uh, too simple of a thing to say, but it actually is worth remembering. The incarnation or the teaching about the incarnation, it comes in a sense in the midpoint of scripture. So we're supposed to already know things about God and what Jesus reveals about God is not going to conflict with things about uh, that are taught about God in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 40, teaching that God does not faint or grow weary. Well, that, that is testimony to divine impassibility, actually. And Jesus is not countering that <laughs> at all in right. his human life or in, or in his teaching. And I think, secondly, when we do try to learn things about God from the incarnation, we certainly have to say that the incarnate God as human undergoes suffering and change and all of that. But I'm thinking especially of Hebrews 2, for example, where when we learn about what happened in the incarnation, Jesus became a merciful high priest. There's testimony even in the incarnation to the fact that Jesus' divine essence is not characterized by something like suffering. So even the incarnation throws us back into an account of God that emphasizes strong attributes like impassibility and immutability and all that. In the way that it emphasizes what is unique qua incarnate. Yeah. Yeah, setting off that that contrast. Um, maybe this is along the same lines a little bit. Um, what are some of, and I don't want to get deep into these, but just kind of a brief sort of list. What are some of the major objections that people, Christological kind of objections that people have yeah. to, you've mentioned a few in passing, but to classical theism. And maybe we should just say for the sake of our listeners, maybe I should do this first. What do we mean by classical theism as a kind of catch-all term? And then what are some of the Christological objections that might be raised against it? Yeah. So people usually use the phrase classical theism to signify a view of God that emphasizes attributes like aseity, immutability, impassibility, eternity in the sense of transcending time and simplicity as well. Each of those words deserves a definition in its own right, but I won't go into the, into the details on every single one. Um, in the book, I have said, yes, I know that the phrase is in the title, but I'm not particularly interested in the phrase as such. People bring different kinds of baggage to the table when they start analyzing classical theism. So if someone doesn't like that phrase, I frankly don't care. I just want to talk about the actual substantive claims that need to be made in Christology and theology proper. Right. So classical theism is a phrase that basically alerts people to the kind of discussion we're having, um, it, which usually focuses on attributes like the ones that I mentioned. And in the book, I tried to highlight three three recurring themes in, in Christology in, in the modern period that can be used to bring up objections against uh, a so-called classical theistic account of God. So I tried to um, focus on first the fact that some people would say classical theism undermines Christ's relationship to the Father and the Spirit or his interaction with the Father and the Spirit. Um, a second one would be... Would that really briefly, would that be because of like an implicit um, Sabellianism or something like that? Is that the idea? Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think the point there would be some people would say, okay, if God is simple, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit share one divine intellect, will, and power, and all of that. How do you then account for Jesus' distinctness from the Father and the Spirit? The fact, for example, that he, uh, he depends upon the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry and things like that. Yeah. And then secondly, I brought up that some people say um, you can't really have a, a, a one person in the incarnation um, if you're emphasizing things like austerity, immutability. And that is because people people think immutability would then problematize Jesus' 
human change uh, undergoing different events as man. But to um, your point I earlier, think, that would be only if there was a kind of mixing of the natures without yeah, any potentially think, a problem. Yeah, I think there's an underlying assumption there that instead of the union focusing on the person, um, people may tacitly think that the two natures are somehow supposed to be assimilated to each other in order for there to be sufficient unity in the incarnation. And I would just say it's the person that is the focal point of unity. And then we are freed up to affirm the fact that these two natures are very distinct, very unlike each other in many ways. Um, and then a second issue, or sorry, a, a third issue would be um, in, in recent Christology, people often worry about not being able to affirm the genuineness of Jesus' human experience or human suffering. And I think the, the firm distinction between the two natures takes us um, quite a ways there in affirming that we really can say that Jesus undergoes true human experiences, true human suffering. And I actually think that divine impassibility, for instance, the teaching that, that uh, God as God transcends suffering and harm and deprivation and all of that, it actually helps us understand the genuineness of Jesus' human suffering because mm -hmm. he is undergoing unalloyed human suffering that he experiences truly as our brother, which I think is the wonderful comfort that Hebrews brings to us. It seems like lurking underneath the objections and even the original objection, yeah, but what about Jesus? Yeah, classical theism, but what about Jesus? It seems like there's an inarticulated kind of monophysitism. Um, mm. You know what I mean? That it's, it's, it's kind of the default it, yeah. Christology that is animating the question. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to put it. Um, there's a, 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 an essay by Matthew Levering, who's a very prominent writer on, on some of these, these subjects, um, where he makes the point that um, a lot of problems do start by um, what seems like a presupposition that the two natures somehow have to be, maybe, maybe people wouldn't overtly say blended together, but assimilated to each other in such yeah. a way that only, only if that's the case can Jesus really be one person. When I talk to my undergrads, sometimes I, I describe the various heresies, uh, whether it's Nestorianism or Apollinarianism or Monophysitism or mm -hmm. something like that, as, as kind of Christologies of, this is, very, this is a very imprecise term, but as something's got to give. Mm -hmm. Like for this yeah. union to be achieved, either uh, union of person has to give if you're Nestorian or full sure. and true natures have to give if you're an Apollinarian um, or a Monophysite. Um, yep. so there's this kind of, like, it seems like all across the spectrum, except for Nicene and Chalcedonian orthodoxy, all the Christological heresies and all the different places they occupy on the spectrum are all forfeitures of yeah. unity of person or something in either of the natures. Yeah. Yeah. It's, scripture requires us to, to confess so many things about the person of Christ and it's tempting to offer an account that would give up one of those things. And somehow we have to keep it all together. And I think we're right to, to continue in the, in the line of Chalcedonian Christology. All right. We're in the home stretch. So I want to hit one more, one more point, um, just sort of broadly hitting a few topics that are covered in, in really great and painstaking depth in your book. So as a final thought, how does the communication of Christ's one subsistence. So we say that there's one person, uh, and there is, even in the Nicene Creed, we say one Lord Jesus Christ, the communication of his one subsistence as person to his human nature. How does this rule out Nestorianism? And so maybe for our listeners, what you could say is, what does Nestorianism teach? 
And then how does the communication of his one subsistence to his human nature rule that out? And I, I say this somewhat in light of Bruce McCormick's recent critiques that pretty mm-hmm. much the whole Chalcedonian tradition were all crypto historians, mm. including Cyril of Alexandria, which to me was just almost over the top, Stephen. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, it would be very hard <laughs> to, to get Cyril uh, to be an historian. But I, I think I think McCormick effectively argues that because he argues that yeah. um, he argues that classical theism and classical Christian Christology doesn't faithfully maintain a single subject, single person yeah. with its two yeah. nature doctrine. So, how, so in your book, you deal with this uh, near the end of the near the end of the book. I think the fifth or sixth chapter. Uh, How does the communication of personhood to the human nature rule out that accusation of Nestorianism? Yeah, the error in Nestorianism is is the idea that there are actually two persons involved in the incarnation, one being God the Son, another being the man Jesus, and somehow the man Jesus has a special relationship uh, to, to the person of God the Son or something like that. Um, the scriptural historic Christian view, of course, is that God, the son and the man, Jesus are one and the same person. And, um, one helpful way, uh, to try to unpack that is to, is to talk through how God, the son communicates, uh, his subsistence or person to the human nature that he takes on by communicate. We mean share. He, he makes it the case that his human nature, um, is brought into the unity of his of his person, so his person is shared with the humanity. It sounds a little bit clunky to say, but it's it's important to I think it's important to affirm that, and it helps us to uh, helps us to clarify there was not an independent man existing in the first century that God the Son somehow specially indwelt or something like that. Right, the human nature in its own right it it has no personhood. Um, It is created and actualized and individualized only in the person of God, the Son. So once we lay down that claim, we are clearly going away from the direction of Nestorianism. And from there, I think to answer someone like McCormick, I think we would just have to say, Jesus' human suffering, it just does not have to be reallocated to another person or it does not have to be affirmed only by saying that Jesus undergoes divine suffering. I think that would be another case of a, of a person implicitly suggesting that what, what it is that marks the human nature must somehow be brought into the divine nature in order to secure the unity of the person of Christ. And I think we just need to say there's one person, two natures. Those two natures are not in the same order of being, so they're not competing with each other. But right. it's perfectly acceptable to say that there's suffering uh, in the humanity and transcendence of suffering in the deity. I, I think, Brit, I like that you mentioned non-competition of the natures, because I think our tendency is to think, again, back to the something's got to give approach, yeah. that that for these two to, in a certain sense, fit in one person, mm-hmm. there's got to be a sort of space sharing, a, a giving way to the yeah. other, or a giving up of something in order to blend into a third thing or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that would be the case, per- perhaps, if we were talking about one person in two created natures in which they exist in the same order of being. And I, I wonder if that, just in your way of saying non-competition, it makes me think of mm-hmm. some of the work of Brian Davies um, and, and other Catholic theologians who have really done a good job emphasizing that 
the world and God are not ontological entities competing for space with each other. Yeah. That's not the way they relate. So of course they wouldn't relate that way in the personal union in the sun. Yeah, that is true. Thank you for saying that. And uh, thank you for your time today uh, to join us uh, on the short podcast. And I want to really encourage our listeners to find uh, Stephen's book, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism. You can find it anywhere that uh, fine books are sold. And uh, you will be, I think you'll be richly rewarded. Uh, and it's, it's a book that will take some time and it will take some uh, contemplation and some stick to itiveness, uh, but I think it will, I think it will richly reward readers. And I think it will answer a lot of questions that listeners, readers have been having in the last 15 or 20 years with a kind of resurgence of interest in classical theism. There has yet to be a kind of equal thoroughgoing corresponding revival of a classical Christology that really syncs up well with it. And I think this book is a major step uh, in that direction. So Stephen Doobie, thank you for writing this. Thank you for coming on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, I do want to encourage our listeners uh, to find a, find the time to get into Stephen's book, uh, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism. Uh, this is one of those longer books uh, with lots of footnotes and some technical argument, but even as you had a taste of in our uh, audio today, Stephen is a very clear communicator and uh, is a pace, patient researcher, and this, this uh, book will pay uh, returns on your investment uh, far greater than your investment, I'm sure. So if you're interested in possibly winning a copy of Stephen Doobie's book, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. You'll find a place there near the bottom of the paragraph uh, introducing today's talk where you can enter your information for the chance of possibly winning a copy. This is made available to us by our friends at Baker Academic. Please write to us if you have any questions uh, or any things you would like us to discuss on the podcast. Also, if you're able to donate, you can do that at placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org. You'll see a, a green donate button in the upper right hand of the screen. If you know others who will benefit from this podcast, please pass along our information. Also, rate and review the podcast if you're able. That helps us to spread the word about Theology on the Go. And again, thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. For many churches, the sacraments hold little significance. Others assign them an unbiblical purpose or meaning. Gain a Reformed perspective on the sacraments of the church. Join the pastor professors of Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary for the 2022 Westminster Conference, September 9th and 10th near Pittsburgh, PA. It's the Westminster Standards and the Means of Grace. The sacraments as holy signs and seals of the covenant. Keith Evans, Richard Gamble, Jeffrey Stuyvesant, David Whitlaw, C.J. Williams, and Barry York explore the sacraments as a mark of the church. The essential insights of Calvin, Lord Warriston, and more. Friday evening and Saturday morning, September 9th and 10th at Providence Presbyterian Church in McKees Rocks, PA. Learn more or register now online at rpts.edu slash events. rpts.edu slash events. The 2022 Westminster Conference, sponsored in part by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.